It's the week of world press freedom, and journalists around the world commemorate this for a grim reason. It's a reminder that media organizations are censored, fined, suspended, and even closed down, while journalists are harassed, attacked, or killed. This is certainly true of the Philippines, where press freedom is being rolled back before our very eyes. I am Glenda Gloria. Welcome to Love of Country, a Rappler podcast that dives into patriotism, or what some prefer to call nationalism. Bottom line, it's love of country. Journalism has always been an act of faith. It's always been aspirational. It's always been like, you know, what can be more unrealistic, say, than the idea that if you write something, that if you expose the truth, then good things will happen, right? And we're honored to have with us one of the icons of Philippine journalism, a top-notch investigative journalist, a committed mentor, and a Filipino who has shown her love of country in more ways than one, Sheila Coronel. Well, okay, so I guess we have to start this conversation by recalling that, of course, you started as a journalist under the Marcos dictatorship. Why would anyone during that dark period even want to be a journalist? That's a good question. I was originally going to be a lawyer. And the, the question I asked myself was, why would anyone want to be a lawyer during the Marcos dictatorship? The next worst thing was being a journalist, I guess. Um, it, it meant I didn't have to go through four years of law school. I still remember my first full-time job was in 1982 with Panorama Magazine. And that was the year that Joe Burgos and the entire staff of Malaya were put to jail for writing about Marcus's fake war medals. And I thought that was not a very auspicious time to start a journalism career. But at the same time, that was also the time when press controls were somewhat looser than they were in the past. And there were people like Joe Burgos, Mr. and Miss of Egi Apostol, Letty Magsanok, who were testing the limits of what was possible to, to write. So, you know, if I graduated from college in 1972, I probably wouldn't have gone into journalism, but, but because by the time I went into journalism, it was possible to do journalism that really mattered, that spoke to the truth. I thought it was worth a shot. And I guess at that point, um, as early as then, the media was considered the fourth estate. What did it mean during that time to be part of a fourth estate? Well, at that time, the press was very much controlled, but it was not as controlled as it was in 1972. My first job was at Panorama, which was part of the bulletin today. And I remember the older guys there telling me, you know, in 1972, we had a military censor in the office and he would physically go through every line in the copy and red line things that were not possible to print at that time. Uh, but in 1981, Marcos lifted martial law, quote unquote. 
and allowed a certain measure of freedom. So Who Magazine was allowed to report freely about human rights abuses. Mm -hmm. Mr. and Miss uh, was a magazine, women's magazine. It was allowed to talk about human rights lawyers, gave columns to people like Renee Sagisag. So, uh, you know, before that, I was in an underground newspaper, actually. And uh, we, were, we were mimeographing. I don't know that young people know what mimeograph machines are anymore. Uh, but we were typing our stories on stencil. And when there was no mimeographing machine, because mimeographing machines were monitored by the government, we would use, you know, these things that you use for making t-shirts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we would maybe have a thousand copies and with very limited reach. So I thought if I work for then, you know, Panorama Magazine had like 250,000 circulation. I could live with the constraints while mm -hmm. also reaching a broader audience. And you were able to achieve that? Um, was there a point when you felt, you know, it was not worth the risk? Yes. Well, first of all, it was more fun to be in the mainstream media uh, because you could be in press conferences uh, when it was very restrictive. You could write about restaurants, movie stars, entertainment, which, which I did do because I worked for a magazine. When there were restrictions, it was like a cat and mouse game. Whenever uh, the president would call our publisher over to Malacanang, then it would be restrictive. And then after a few months, we would try and, you know, again, test the edges of what we can do. And it was also fun because we had a community of journalists, who were, you know, people I had gone to UP with. We mm -hmm. all entered um, the mainstream media all at the same time. If our stories were censored, you could at least go to the press club and have a few rounds of beer and cry on each other's shoulders. Okay. So it was not like you were alone. And then in 1983, when the Aquino assassination happened, then it became so exciting. There were a lot of things that needed to be written, but it was also much more restrictive. Like several times our magazine was not allowed um, to be, you know, they had printed 250,000 copies like for a very innocuous story, like the crowds lining up outside um, Santo Domingo Church where Nino Aquino was lying in state. They didn't want to see the number of people who were sympathetic to Ninoy. So after, 19, after 1983, it was touch and go. Uh -huh. And then it became untenable, especially as Marcos was sick and is trying to hold on to power. And then it just became impossible to do any kind of decent reporting. Okay. And I guess fast forward to today, uh, what has changed in our work and, and, and in the challenges we now face as journalists? A lot has changed because at that time there were three major newspapers, three major TV stations, and some a smattering of what they called alternative newspapers. Now, there are many more channels for distributing information, especially with social media, the blogs, with many more online, you know, like Rappler, digital only um, news sites. So there are many more channels for disseminating information. Uh, but at the same time, the 
the audience is much more fragmented and and polarized. It's a very different um, atmosphere. But you know, when I look back, I think what we haven't done, and the reason why we're going through this again, is we haven't really asked institutions, the media, all the institutions of society, haven't really held ourselves accountable for what we did during the Marcos era. Yeah, there was no really attempt to see how the major institutions of society, Catholic Church, mass media, not to mention the courts, political parties were complicit in, in dictatorship. So when people power happened and things changed, there was really no reckoning. Even now, only now, even now we're still reckoning with the legacies of Marcos, but there was no real societal reckoning. And so we are again living through sort of resurgence of authoritarian or strongman rule. And it looks like we hadn't really learned the lessons from the past. Uh, so, so you think we could still have that reckoning? Yeah, I think we can. You know, I've been um, just serendipitously reading because I'm thinking also the post-Duterte era. And then looking at South Africa, for example, where they had a truth and reconciliation commission mm-hmm. and where they, ex- they examined you know, the role of institutions, including the media, for its failure to report adequately about human rights violations and about the apartheid system and how that failure sustained apartheid for many years. So I think we need to have some sort of institutional reckoning because otherwise, unless we have really looked at ourselves and really said, we will not do this again, uh, you know, never again, it's going to happen again. And, and we, we've seen that in the last few years. I, I'm sure you've, you've been updated on, you know, um, recent debates on social media you know, blaming a journalist for asking a certain question. And, and there's this conversation on social that um, illustrates to you the kind of, you know, how polarized Philippine media also is. Is, is. is that the kind of reckoning at this moment? We call each other out. We point out uh, mistakes in, in how we do our work. Or, or is there something more probably institutional that is required of us? Well, that is part of it. That is part of it, in calling out the mistakes. But I think there has to be much more of an ins- institutional examination of our role and our complicity in the face of um, so much abuse of power, so much violence, so much bloodletting. Mm-hmm. And... What could we have done better? Uh, how have we defined, for example, if you're talking about that, that incident with the community pantries, how we define um, what a story is, how we define uh, the questions we ask, how we define who sets the story. You know, a, a lot of times, uh, journalists have mainly been reacting to what people in authority say rather than to questioning 
what those authorities are saying. I think all over the world, there is now a questioning, even here in the US, especially here in the US, especially after the protests against racism in last year and the restrictions of the pandemic, people have really been taking a more intense look about what stories are being told, what stories mm -hmm. are not being told, mm -hmm. who tells the story even, mm -hmm. and how we acknowledge the mistakes of the past. Um, for example, the LA Times has looked back at its coverage over decades and looked at how it has actually supported and sustained racism in its stories. Um, there's a group of activist journalists who are even calling for media reparations for their failure to write history accurately and also asking them to set the historical record straight. So these measures are not necessarily punitive. They're really much more uh, because punitive measures on whatever side you're in work only up to a certain point. What we need is really more of self-reflection and self-examination mm -hmm. of our institutional roles mm -hmm. and how we become complicit in you know, sustaining structures of power or even in sustaining state-sponsored violence. You know, I'm, I'm glad you reminded us of, of, of that kind of conversation that the U.S. media is having in the Philippine context, for example, and, and flashback a bit because you were also very involved in it in the media exposés against uh, President Estrada, for example, or the kind of investigative stories um, about Gloria Arroyo. And I remember that time, um, the question then was as basic as, is it part of a journalist's mission to destabilize government? Or, or isn't it true that making governments unstable is an unpatriotic thing to do? I mean, what are your thoughts on this? If, if that kind of question, very basic, and I guess fundamentally shows the lack of understanding of media's role in, in, in democracy. Yeah, that's really strange, you know, because really, the press tradition always has been the one that in the Philippines, the one that they teach in school, is that our national heroes, our founding fathers were journalists who exposed the excesses of colonialism, right? So there was this sort of very heroic tradition that the role was to expose the excesses of power and to expose systems of power that kept people oppressed. This is why we revere Jose Rizal, we revere Marcelo del Pilar. But over the years, there's been a sort of, certainly with, with the Marcos era, that was part of it, that the press should support the new society, developmental journalism. So there have been this sort of counter narratives of what the press role should be. Uh, and the role of the press is by no means singular. In the colonial era, you had most of the press supported colonialism, but there was also anti-colonial press. Uh, during yeah. the Marcos era, there was, you know, the Marcos controlled press, but there were also underground newspapers. So I think throughout history, there's always a tussle between um, the journalism that is supportive of 
of power that is the lap dog of power and the journalism that is the watchdog of power. I don't think there's one single journalism. And in between the lap dog and watchdog, there are many gradations. So I don't think we can say this is what journalism is. Mm-hmm. I think society benefits from a plurality of voices and points of view. But what is important is that there is the freedom to exchange those views. And Mm. if I want to be a watchdog, that's fine. If you want to be a lapdog, that's okay. But there should also be a ground, a level of- A ground zero for truth. (laughs) Yes, that we should agree that there should be no falsity in that we should agree at least on the primacy of facts and context and also independence. You think it's possible today, Shields, given technology and and the spread of disinformation and the kind of uh, fragmented audience that we have? But isn't the notion of a free, independent press always been a dream rather than reality? It's always Mm -hmm. a possibility, Mm -hmm. right? In practice, it never has been. So I think saying that it's not possible means giving up. But I think we should strive. It's like religion. You can never be free of sin, but at least you should strive. (laughs) It's there. And you know what you will aspire to. You may not make it. But if you say it's impossible, that norms of truth, independence, and public interest are no longer possible in the social media era, then that means just basically giving up. I think there should be certain norms which may be unattainable, but to which we should aspire to and that we should educate future journalists about. Yeah. Is that the activist in you talking or the journalist? No, Are you an activist, Sheila? No, journalism has always been an act of faith. It's always been aspirational. It's always been like, you know, what can be more unrealistic, say, than the idea if you write something that if you expose the truth then good things will happen right that's true it's like it is a romance yeah, yeah it is it is a romantic notion yeah mm-hmm. but with what without that then what's the alternative then you're either just a hack or a stenographer that's if true. there is no higher calling then what's the point so you don't see this debate as even meaningful, this, this, are you an activist? Are you a journalist? Does it work? You know, this being no, I, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it's a good way to frame the question. Mm-hmm. I think the, the way to frame it is what are the highest aspirations of what this profession can do? Professional news gathering is able to present facts and to inform citizenry so it can make educated decisions about its future, right? Mm-hmm. That's an aspiration that was hard, it, it, even in democratic societies that doesn't always happen because there've always been constraints imposed by the market or by the state mm-hmm. or by the individual biases of where journalists are from, you know, their race, their social status, everything. Journal- if you accept the premise that journalism is an imperfect profession or imperfect Mm -hmm. trade, then you can say that at least we strive for perfection. It's not attainable, but we strive to something higher. 
So within the context of a repressive regime like um, Rodrigo Duterte's or, or even regimes outside the Philippines, and as you reflect on, on the changes that's happening now and in this pandemic world, what questions do you ask yourself both as a journalist and as a mentor to journalists? And how are you reframing journalism so that it, the aspiration behind it is more acceptable, I guess, uh, and would be more inspiring for, for upcoming uh, journalists? I think to me, it's always been the guiding light in when you're confused is what is the public interest? What does the public need to know? And what questions should the public be asking or questions should you be asking on behalf of the public? Because remember, the reason journalists have the right to report and to ask questions is because we are surrogates for the public, right? And so I've always felt that, especially when I'm intimidated and there are repercussions for the kinds of reporting that I'm doing or we are doing, then the, the guiding principle should be, my task is to keep the public informed and I will do that. And that means asking the right questions, pushing back against the narratives of power. That also means reaching out to a lot of people who are unheard or haven't been asked or haven't been interviewed and, and asking them what matters to their lives. So it's not us determining what questions we should ask because we have to acknowledge our own biases and prejudices and where we're coming from. You know, I can tell you where I'm, I'm from, where I went to school, where my professional experience is, where my family is from, and that shapes who I am and the questions I ask. But acknowledging that, acknowledging our own intrinsic biases, and then realizing that we have our own truths, but it's not the only truth. Mm -hmm. That the way to get at the truth with a capital T is mm -hmm. to get many truths. And it's just not just the truth of those who are in power, but it's also especially the truth of those without power. So if you make it as simple as that, then your mission is very clear. And that is sustainable. Is journalism still sustainable within this context and within that framework that you just discussed? I think so. I mean, what is the alternative? The alternative is, is to be... Um, a stenographer, meaning mm -hmm. just report what's there. Alternative uh, is to be an apologist for power. What's the other alternative? The alternative is to take partisan side or whatever that side is from and be a shill or a hack for one side or the other. Um, all that you can do, and some journalists do that. And But I think institutionally and individually, and as a community of journalists, because I believe there is a community of journalists, then what we uphold really is journalism in the public interest. Sheila, we are airing this um, um, during the World Press Freedom Week. And I guess to kind of wrap this up, if you have to cite reasons why we Filipino journalists should be celebrating our craft or, or celebrating journalism. What would this reasons be? I actually think 
press freedom will endure in the Philippines. I may, um, and we only see it in the light of the present. But if you look historically, there's always been strong support for a free press. There have always been attempts to have, you know, alternative sources of, of information. If you look at the history books, La Solidaridad was published in Spain. It was smuggled in ships to the Philippines. And once it got here, they smuggled uh, these pieces of paper inside haystacks, you know, in carabao drawn carts. And, and yet it was able to influence the Philippine Revolution. When Aguinaldo was fighting the Americans in the early 1900s, his new newspaper, La Independencia, was printed in a small press and they were running away from the Americans. But he made sure that, that, that the newspaper was wrapped in banana leaves so that it will not get wet and then distributed to the supporters of the revolution. Of course, that revolution failed. The Americans took over. But that kind of aspiration under the most difficult circumstances has lived on on through the Second World War, on through martial law, and even now in various formats. We don't use banana leaves anymore. <laughs> but that kind of spirit of reaching out to people and telling the truth and telling them you need to do something because the alternatives are going to be much worse. It's always there. It's a consistent theme in our history, as consistent as the theme of oppression and repression of free speech. Right. So, so well said. <laughs> So there, so it's it's really a question of which side of history you want to be on. But you have to remind us <laughs> that you were not alive then during that period. I know I was not <laughs> yet alive during the Aguinaldo period. No. <laughs> no, I think we. I would have loved to be on horseback distributing yeah. newspapers. A lot of people now tend to forget that that has been the the role. Um, of Philippine media, right? I mean, we've played critical roles in democratic transitions. We were the first country to overthrow colonial power in Asia. Mm -hmm. And that was in large part because of journalism, of the, because yeah. of the press. Yeah. Wow. It's a great wrap of the discussion. Always a pleasure to talk and <laughs> chat with you about these things. Uh, Sheila, I think we need to be reminded of who we are, being a journalist and, and our proud tradition. And we're happy that you laid that all out for us here. Um, thank, well, thank you so you much for this again. great conversation. I am Glenda Gloria, and this has been Love of Country. Listen to other Rappler podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.